Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read Hinterland, America's New Landscape of Class and Conflict by Phil A. Neal. We are currently on Chapter 3, which is entitled The Iron City, and we're beginning a new segment, which is entitled Algorithms. But before we do that, I want to encourage people to please share a link to this episode on any social media platform that you may frequent. I want to remind people that we put these episodes out on a daily basis on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Anchor, YouTube, Facebook, anywhere audio is available. This podcast series is available to be digested. Now, with that being said, one of the things we've been doing is a reflection or a previously on uh, before we begin the next episode. And so previously on Rafa Reading Daily, we began chapter three of Hinterland. America's new landscape of class and conflict. We shifted to Washington and Seattle. Well, Seattle, which is a city within Washington, but we sit, we shifted from there from some of the other cities and states that we had read about previously. And we began to learn about how the economy operates in some of those areas. We began to learn about some of the living circumstances in some of those areas, some of the demographics in some of those areas. One of the, some of the things that stood out to me very much was learning about the type of employment that is accessible there. Some of the other things that stood out to me as well was learning about how the inversion of living situations, I'm used to hearing the term suburbs and instantly applying that to thinking of white people or thinking of people of, of more affluence and more money and, Phil A. Neal was explaining to us how in some of these mega cities that has been inverted and now the urbanites or the people with the that you would sort of have associated with living in the suburbs and now living within these cities, within these mega cities and other people are being pushed out to the peripheries of these cities and moving into these post-war suburbs that exist and how poverty is beginning to accumulate in those areas as opposed into the inner cities as gentrification takes takes place and as new modes of as new the new modes of the economy sort of take place uh, so let's dive in to chapter three this next segment is entitled algorithms located in the attic at the top of the king county courthouse in downtown seattle one consolation offered by the work release unit was the view. From our dorm, we had panoramic windows with bars to prevent suicide, opening onto the southern stretch of the city, including the stadiums, the port, and the Soto industrial area. The natural sight line of the glacial valley ensured that on clear days, you could see all the way down the stretch of railroads, factories, and warehouses to where the planes descended onto Boeing Field, the region's primary freight airport. The landscape is one of catastrophes. The landscape is one of catastrophes layered atop one another. As you travel south, the people get poorer, the work gets harder, the air, soil, and water get dirtier, and everything begins to feel far more faceless. People are atop. People are atomized into old housing complexes and decaying post-war single-family homes scattered between vast, almost incomprehensible infrastructures designed not for human habitation, but instead for the efficient circulation of goods. There is no communal space. Instead, 
there are only small, exploded cores of retail and leisure where human interaction is reduced to the buying and selling of things. But this doesn't really become apparent until day-to-day life begins to break you down. Excuse me. But this doesn't really become apparent until day-to-day life begins to break down. And work release, technically in, quote, alternative to confinement, end quote, you're allowed to leave the building if you have a job or school to attend, so long as you can have all your time outside accounted for by supervisors. If you have unaccounted for time, you're sent back to the county jail. If you're late, you're working. If you're late, you are sent back to county. If you're caught doing things other than working or looking for work, you're sent back to county. Your work, quote, privileges, end quote, can be revoked by your caseworker at any time. So there's always a chance that you simply won't be able to make it out and may lose your job for it. Some employers actually preferred these terms since it meant that their workers had little leeway to agitate for higher wages or workplace protections. Several of the recycling centers in Soto recruited from the work release unit directly, hiring the prisoners to sort the unwashed and often dangerous recyclables. Though ostensibly run by the resident caseworkers, the entire system was actually dependent on an underlying software system. It was this software system that had the ultimate authority, since it was the reference used by the guards to let you out to work or to record when you would when you should be back. There were stories, of course. Sometimes the caseworker had input the data incorrectly and you weren't allowed for the allowed out for the day. Even worse was if they had input the wrong return time, meaning that people would be sent back to county upon their return and may be charged with a felony for quote, escaping, end quote, simply because the computer system said they should have been back hours before and the caseworkers had left for the weekend. Those who had been living in the unit for the longest told stories about people who'd been sent to county on a computer error and ended up serving the rest of their sentence there and losing their jobs, since the caseworker took three weeks to receive and process their complaint. One day, the entire system simply crashed. No one could be let out because when the software rebooted, all the data had been erased. The, quote, alternative, end quote, to confinement became a little less alternative as over a hundred prisoner workers were stuck inside dorms that weren't really designed for full capacity. The caseworkers called people up one by one to re-input the schedules, which had to be confirmed again each time with everybody's supervisors at work. The crash happened on a Thursday and many of us didn't have our schedules input again until the following Monday. The worst thing wasn't really the wages lost or being stuck inside. It was just that the entire illusion had collapsed for a moment, and when it did, the other, ancillary illusions also briefly flickered off. It wasn't that we had to reckon with the fact that we were imprisoned, but instead with the fact that work wasn't really an escape. We sat around playing hearts and talking about what we used to do before we were in and what we would do when we were out, even when we knew the reality was that we had, even though we knew the reality was that we had done and would be doing much the same thing, only more alone. When things break, it only shows that everything is already broken. The industrial stretch beyond the window was not freedom in any real sense of the word. It was just a long catastrophe abutted by neighborhoods filled with people fleeing other catastrophes, some rapid, some excruciatingly slow. We move from one to the other, convincing ourselves that we have somehow escaped, 
Workers come down from the jails and housing complexes to staff the recycling centers or the vast alien warehouses where their every action will be guided by the incomprehensible command of some software system compiling stock for just-in-time delivery. Those warehouses themselves built in glacier-cut valleys, now a floodplain for polluted rivers eroding down into lahar deposits, strata left from the last volcanic eruption when Rainier had spewed out rolling clouds of magma-infused mud and scalding vapor, incinerating the lowlands in a hurricane of ash. It's the same land where the squatter settlements have been built in the Great Depression, before the Navy burned them to the ground. Economic catastrophe layered on natural disaster, and now natural disaster dictated by economic demand. But when things break... We are also given a chance to force something communal out of the ruins. After several of us got out, we met up a few times at the casino. Playing cards now had a certain comfort to it, and the urge to gamble was almost irresistible after having every modicum of our lives governed in so much detail by inscrutable algorithms. The casino was in Tukwila, a squat, glowing building on a triangle of land sitting between the railroad the highway, and Boeing Field. Outside, semi-trucks Outside, semi-trucks hurled past, heavy with packages heading out to the warehouses, or maybe barren, ratchet straps rattling against the empty beds as they slow before the airstrip. Different details governed by different algorithms. Left with nothing else, we could at least enjoy the momentary freedom that accompanies sheer chance even if the odds weren't in our favor. The casino was filled with others like us, people trying desperately to break the idiotic monotony of work and wages. It didn't matter if they lost. One of my friends, a tall Taiwanese man, whom I'd practiced my Mandarin with in the hallway between cells, confessed that he felt lonely now that he was out. Inside, he'd had more friends than he'd ever had, he said. Now he just went from his apartment to his job and back again. He sold cell phones for 40 waking hours each week. At home, he'd watch Netflix. Sometimes an entire day would go by in which he talked to no one except for his supervisor and a few customers. Maybe when everyone was out, we could all get together again and go to Vegas, he suggested. Or maybe Reno. Anywhere we can make bigger bets. And that brings us to the end of that segment and to a changing of the theme within this chapter. So let's have a reflection. So we are getting a a deeper look at how mass incarceration is shaping the experience of our author. And we also get a deeper look at how mass incarceration operates in different areas and reading about the, reading about these algorithms and the experience that people were having in this work release program just reminds me of some of my experiences with being, with being arrested and and going to jail in the, in Winnebago County. And the thing that becomes very apparent up front is that you are just a number. You all, all aspects of being a human being or being an individual or being a person, all of those things are pushed to the side once those handcuffs are put on you and once you are ushered into this system. Uh, you become just a number within a system, uh, 
a part of a machine that does not recognize anything except for, you know, except for that, that ID number that you're given. And that goes with, you know, medical, medical care. You're not given adequate medical care. I've heard of people being denied medicine, denied medical assistance while being inside of the Winnebago County jail. The same thing goes for, you know, the food, the way the food that you're given, the things that you eat in there are is essentially poison. You know, you're you're eating food that is detrimental to your health three times a day on a regular basis. The psychological trauma that exists within this system, all of these different things that just are dehumanizing aspects uh, is what stands out to me as we're reading about the the author's experience within within this jail. But also I think what stands out to me is how is juxtaposing these experiences that these people inside these jails are having to the realities of what's going on outside of these jails and the, the world that exists outside of these jails and how the world that exists outside of these jails create the ingredients to people or create the create the 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 climate or create the culture or create the atmosphere that leads to people ending up inside of these jails you know we've read through this book for over 100 pages now at this point and we've seen how governmental actions have led to increases in poverty uh, we've seen how industries uh, and industries and companies and business and capitalistic aspirations have led to desperate situations for individuals and for people. And I'm very much preach the fact that you can't just look at the effects of something. You have to begin to look at the causes of something. And when you analyze the causes that we've read up to this point in the book, it makes you have a, a deeper empathy for the people who suffer some of the effects of these things. Mm. Okay. So let's dive back into hinterland and let's pick up with this new section, which is entitled inversion. In 2008, before living in Seattle, Nevada, or overseas, I had moved from rural California to rural Wisconsin to finish a four-year degree after a couple years spent in the community college system. I studied something frivolous on a low-income scholarship, worked the night audit at a local Super 8 motel, and traveled around the ruins of the rural Midwest in my time off. The area that I lived in was filled with long-abandoned settlements, overgrown farms, and towering industrial ruins. The most notable of these were the ore docks and other remnants of port facilities along Lake Superior. These docks were vast skeletons of steel and wood with abandoned railroads arcing up hundreds of feet in the air to meet fleets of long sunken ships carrying cargoes of timber and ore drawn from the North Woods to build the cities of America's early industrial boom. Today, only ruined industries remain. 
Some of the most lucrative logging is done by divers in Lake Superior who haul up the old growth dropped from the ships more than 100 years ago. Small-scale farmers cut out new market niches with organic crops and dairy products, imagining a, quote, green future, end quote, despite low productivity and high prices. Mines return to the region with new, more ruthless techniques to be used in the absence of ore veins. The rock is melted down and minerals harvested through a complex process of chemical distillate, distil, distillation. The effluents dumped in nearby, quote, containment, end quote, sites patrolled by paramilitaries. Some of the old docks have even been retained, as in Marquette, as in Marquette, Michigan, where the new mines can easily unload their smaller but more valuable payloads. Elsewhere, tourism or energy production dominate the employment profile, common features of areas largely left behind by today's industrial agglomeration. Economic activity is largely concentrated according to arbitrary factors of history and geography. In most cases, the whims of a handful of billionaires have combined with historically inherited geographical or infrastructural endowments to define the upperly mobile cities of the 21st century. While city governments across the country shower money on snake oil consultants who promise to unlock the secrets of attracting hip, creative millennials to even the most unattractive of cities, the fact remains that most places simply do not have the necessary characteristics to become the next Austin, Texas or Atlanta, Georgia. This is especially true given the fact that they are competing for a shrinking pool of capital that, when invested in high-tech industries, produces a remarkably low number of jobs despite the multiplier effect. If a city does not have a major seaport, like most of the coastal met met metropoles, a geographically important location, often combined with major railroad or highway hub, Chicago, Indianapolis, Indiana, Denver, Colorado, or a government or military cluster, Washington, D.C., San Diego, California, Colorado Springs, Colorado, then the competition grows far more extreme. Historical inheritance plays a large role as well, especially in, quote, brain hubs, end quote, around university complexes. This is visible in Silicon Valley's connection with Stanford, the Boston area's dependence on the education industry and related research and development, and the Raleigh-Durham-Chapel-Hill Research Triangle in North Carolina. Many smaller cities also follow this pattern, essentially acting as one industry college towns riding the student debt bubble as long as they can. But shit, that sentence, I'm going to read it one more time. Many smaller cities also follow this pattern, essentially acting as one industry college towns riding the student debt bubble as long as they can. Others centralize around small clusters of insurance and healthcare hubs, surfing a similar bubble. This small town dimension of the American hinterland is once staffed by administrative workers of all sorts, essentially bureaucrats stuffed into the bloated body of state backed speculative schemes in the sorely inefficient healthcare and education sectors. Any attempt to rationalize or equitably reform these industries will also, in effect, threaten the livelihoods of these corners of the hinterland, which still often conceive of themselves as vaguely middle class. These small to medium towns with mid-range service economies would almost certainly be the first to be sacrificed if the bubbles collapse or if meaningful student debt and healthcare reforms were put into motion. Other cities seem to be little more than a sequence of economic booms, 
the first of which were essentially random, though the success of one also tended to make future successes more probable. Often the historical boom of one industry can concentrate capital, which then allows for further investment and diversification outside the original boom industry. This is the case with the major oil cities of Texas, as well as with the more recent boom in North Dakota. Others have historical endowments simply due to their concentration of wealthy individuals or leisure activity, as seen in Santa Fe, New Mexico, Las Vegas, Nevada, Connecticut's Gold Coast, or even significantly smaller, second-home leisure cities like Aspen, Colorado. These sorts of historical endowments tend to define concentration at the local and state levels, even if many of these cities may not play the same global role as New York or Silicon Valley. Often such cities, Wichita, Kansas, Iowa City, Iowa, Reno, Nevada, are dependent on a single, relatively small industrial complex, the loss of which will be capable of unbinding the entire local economy, as has already happened with many of the smaller Rust Belt cities of the Northeast. In Wisconsin, the harshest dissonance came not from the wreckage of the industrial past coexisting with myths of a new, quote, green, end quote, economy to come, but instead from the age of this particular Rust Belt. This was not a region simply bankrupt by the post-1970s restructuring, like much of the Northeast, nor was it just one among many areas passed over for wartime or New Deal investments during the 20th century's middle age of war and depression. Instead, these ore dock and sunken ships were the, ruin were the ruined pillars of an industrial edifice that began its collapse as soon as it was built, ultimately becoming little more than an ancillary ultimately becoming little more than an ancillary ancillary to greater cities along the southern stretches of the Great Lakes. Okay, that word is pronounced ancillary. That's my fault. I've heard the word used before. Common word. Well, I don't know if common is the right way, but it's a, it's a word that's used often. Heard the word used before. I did not pronounce it right. And I need to get an exact definition because a lot of times I just hear the word used and I just use context to try to understand the word. But this is the definition, adjective, ancillary, providing necessary support to the primary activities or operation of an organization, institution, industry, or system. Now, a person whose work provides necessary support to the primary activities of an organization, institution, or industry. Okay, ancillary. Um. It was not just a Rust Belt then, but a single ghost-like megacity that had never taken form. Stillborn, its remains were overgrown, often barely recognizable as things built by humans. Pillars of finely designed iron, steel, and concrete now vine-wrapped, eroded, and regressed to their deeper geological natures. The ore docks had followed the railroads, most built in the late 19th century and the last built around the First World War, to supply renewed demand for steel in the industrial core. Early on, the region imagined that it would become an economic capital unto itself, comparable to Chicago in its industrial capacity and exceeding it in natural, and exceeding it in natural amenities. In 1893, the city of Ashland, Wisconsin, hosted 16 commercial docks and loaded 7,000 ships, the second busiest port on the Great Lakes. Population had exploded and receded several times, 
following the whims of the railroads and industrial crises that defined the later 19th century. At one point, the city had declined from a population of hundreds to just a single family who was cycled through different abandoned houses at their whim. When the railroad chose the area for its bayside terminus, however, the population recovered and the town was deemed, quote, the future Iron City of Lake Superior, end quote. But the Panic of 1873, called the Great Depression before it was superseded by greater ones, was followed by a series of labor conflicts, the peak of which was the, quote, Ashland War, end quote, in the winter of 1872 and 73, in which workers demanded in which workers demanding unpaid wages were rounded up by a local militia and forced to walk 80 miles to a neighboring town in sub-zero winter. Another brief boom saw the construction of the first ore docks, offering a glimpse at the prophesied, quote, Iron City, end quote, a mirage that collapsed again with the Panic of 1893. The next boom came in the early 1900s, followed by the Panic of 1907, the Panic of 1910 and 1911, the recession of 1913 and 1914, and the first World War boom that would see the last of the ore docks constructed, at which point there was little left in the old dream of the northern metropolis. Harsh winter blizzards passed over the industrial skeletons, guaranteed to be nothing more than servants to an economic renaissance centered elsewhere. The different character of economic concentration today similarly leads to different intensities of logistics activity, as well as a nationally uneven distribution of the general trend toward demographic inversion, in which the urban core is gentrified and the suburbs impoverished. On one level, this can be understood regionally. Coastal cities have tended to perform best since they are where all the factors for economic concentration tend to be combined. Seaports, rail and interstate hubs, first stop destinations for foreign air freight, and historical endowments in the form of established universities, wealthy residents, and leisure industries. The global character of the post-1970s economic restructuring has tended to benefit those cities that are best connected to international circuits for capital and commodities, while depriving those that are landlocked. Even where manufacturing had been an economic base for such coastal cities, its destruction has largely been complemented by an influx of new industries. These are the cities pointed to as the unparalleled success stories of the, quote, information economy, end quote, which others attempt in vain to emulate. In these coastal cities, the same pattern of demographic inversion visible in Seattle is the standard. The old inner city slums are redeveloped, Many of the original residents leave as an influx of wealthier, wider residents drive simultaneous booms in private development and public investment in things like streetcars, light rail systems, bike lanes, and public parks. On the urban fringes, on the urban fringes and in the inner ring suburbs, those forced out of the core or leaving what remains of inner city slums mixed with new migrants, both poor domestic migrants attracted by economic opportunity and the foreign born. This creates a second sequence of, quote, white flight, end quote, as predominantly white suburbs are converted into new ghettos and immigrant gateways. Many of the younger white suburbanites may be attracted to the revitalized downtown, but just as many white residents in the outer city and inner suburbs have continued the historical pattern of outward migration, 
moving to ever further exurbs. But there are other areas that take on the character seen in places like Northwestern. But there are other areas that take on the character seen in places like northern Wisconsin, once imagined to be a great industrial complex, now reduced to an essentially rural existence defined by the characteristics observed in other parts of the far hinterland. In winter, when the lake froze, you could walk out on the ice and climb onto the only remaining ore dock, otherwise inaccessible. I went once with a friend as a blizzard gathered in the northern stretches of the jagged, iced-over wasteland that was Lake Superior. From the edge of the dock, you could see it coming like a giant wall of static. Ice fishermen gathered around their small portals of black water as if praying to the guys drowned there, hauling their lines before scattering in their chained-up pickups and snowmobiles. My friend was a former train hopper from the slum suburbs beyond Chicago, recalling to me knife fights between juggalos and tweaker gangs who liked to throw traveler kids off trains for fun. As the blizzard neared, the snow shot horizontally through the dock's towering concrete pillars, as if we were on some sort of entirely uncontrollable vessel traveling at a great speed towards a destination that we can neither see nor choose. This feeling is what I tend to recall when trying to imagine the true scale of these massive, seemingly immovable economic trends. Within such things, the present appears irreducibly complex and the future inscrutable. This is as true in the upwardly mobile coastal metropolis, metropoles. I don't know why I can't get that word right the first time I see it. Metropoles. This is as true in the upwardly mobile coastal metropoles as in the old, largely landlocked manufacturing regions, the only remaining places within the U.S. where the demographic inversion has not yet fully taken hold. Detroit, Michigan, Cleveland, Ohio, Buffalo, New York, Baltimore, Maryland, St. Louis, Missouri, and smaller cities like Scranton, Pennsylvania, Flint, Michigan, Akron, Ohio, and thousands of small to medium-sized manufacturing towns across the Northeast have all seen massive job losses since the 1970s, usually accompanied by major population loss. In small towns, this can leave only a hollowed-out shell as the young follow capitals flow to the core cities. In larger, metro- in larger metropolitan areas, these trends have only deepened the poverty of what we have come to think of as the prototypical inner-city slum. Those who can leave, do. This began with white flight to the suburbs and beyond, expanding the hollow core of the city into ever poorer inner ring suburbs encircled by ever farther white exurbs. It reaches a certain completion with general outmigration from both city and suburbs to more successful urban areas, threatening a ruralization comparable to that seen in the ruins of the quote, Iron City, end quote, to the north. But just as gentrification alone fails accurately to characterize the entirety of the demographic inversion elsewhere, white flight is a completely insufficient account of population loss in many Rust Belt cities. Most stages of this process also include a large-scale migration of the wealthier, better-educated Black population. Some within the Black middle and lower middle class leave the problems of the inner-city slum, seeking better schools and services in the nearest suburbs. But this is only accompanied by further white flight and the drying up of tax dollars in these suburbs, which tend to become little more than new branches of the ever-widening economic blight. 
Many of the better educated within the black upper middle class are therefore traveling further, often returning to the southern states from which their families migrated in the mid 20th century in a new population flow that some demographers have characterized as the third great migration. Only the poorest remain in these central cities of the Rust Belt. This produces a seemingly paradoxical situation in which segregation increases at the same time that urban areas in general have become more diverse. In some cities, both dynamics are at play. This is particularly true in the eastern coastal cities, which have inherited the benefits of seaports and high finance, while also being essentially contingent, contingent, while also being essentially contingent with the northeastern Rust Belt. Contingent, an adjective, sharing a common border, touching. Okay, so adjacent was a synonym, contingent. I got to find where we left off at. In many cases, development of the downtown core has simply displaced zones of segregation further out into the suburbs, meaning that, quote, Many cities are seeing an increase in integrated neighborhoods and an increase in segregated ones at the same time, end quote. In Chicago, for example, quote, the black population declined by 177,401, end quote. And, quote, many went to suburbs surrounding the city on all sides, including suburbs many miles distant from the city limits, end quote, resulting in an overall pattern in which, Quote, between 2000 and 2010, Chicago became a wider city with a larger affluent population, end quote. But most Rust Belt cities failed to follow suit. Instead, the hollowing out of the urban core in such cities has made them resemble more and more the rural spaces of the far hinterland described in earlier chapters. In inner city Detroit, quote, between 1978 and 1998, the city issued 9,000 building permits for new homes, and 108,000 demolition permits, and quite a lot of structures were annihilated without official sanction, end quote. And in 2010, justified as an attempt to concentrate population to provide better services and rid the city of blight, the mayor's office began a campaign to demolish a further quarter of the city's buildings. Unemployment rates of, quote, somewhere around 40 to 50 percent, end quote, mirror the rates found in zones of deep rural poverty. Similarly, much of the existing economy is, is informal and often illegal. The main difference between the Rust Belt's inner cities and the far corners of rural America is simply the fact that they are still adjacent to relatively affluent, if shrinking, zones of accumulation. These more affluent areas take the form of both the cloister downtown core and of remnant, quote, traditional, end quote, suburbs, as in predominantly white suburban Baltimore County. In cities like Detroit, the mass demolition is only part of an attempt to revive the city's downtown, the hope being that development can follow demolition in the many new greenfield sites opened by the program. In some cases, as in Detroit, St. Louis, and Baltimore, the revitalized downtown has remained relatively small and constrained. In others, such as Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the revitalized zone is growing faster but there is little to no buffer between it and the hollow core of slums beyond. And in some cities, such as Cleveland, Ohio, it seems as if downtown is simply refusing to be revitalized.
The future of these areas is hard to determine, but it could well be a properly rural decline in which new crises wipe out the shrinking zones of affluence one by one, like embers dying after the fire has burnt away. Though comparable to the collapse of that boreal, boreal? Though comparable to the collapse of that boreal, end quote, Damn, this word fucking up this whole sentence. Let me find out what this word means. Boreal, adjective of the north or northern regions. An ecology relating to or characteristic of the climatic zone south of the Arctic, especially the cold temperate region dominated by taiga and forest of birch, poplar, and conifers. Okay, northern regions. Though comparable to the collapse of that boreal, quote, Iron City of Lake Superior, end quote, today this would require a rate of demolition befitting our era of gargantuan collapse. It would also entail the qualitative, qualitative, qualitatively, qualitatively, excuse me. It would also entail the qualitatively different processes of converting the properly urban into the rural, rather than a process in which a zone of rural substance fails to grow beyond the limits of a few medium-sized cities and small towns, despite population booms and high expectations. The results of future crises are likely to be just as gigantic and unpredictable, however. In Wisconsin, loud diesel Dodge trucks could often be seen roaring from one fishing hotel, from one fishing hole to the next, all while flying their large Confederate flags within spitting distance of a lake that bordered Canada. Another friend who spent time in the local juvenile jail system for robbing a Taco John's told stories about how one prison guard with swastika tattoos would greet new Ojibwe inmates with initiatory beatings just to make the hierarchy clear. Ojibwe. 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 Excuse me, Ojibwe. And this is a, a tribe, an indigenous tribe. At the same time, any nascent left wing was lost in a million minor substance projects centered on a network of anarchist-ish organic farms and indigenous heritage groups. Another friend, that same train hopper from the logistic cities of Chicago, had moved up to the area after hearing stories about how a particular sect of Maidenwini had gotten into gunfights with the FBI back in the 1970s. Midwinwin. Okay, so that is pronounced Midwin, Midwinwin, another tribe. He had hoped that some of that momentum remained, only to find that those who weren't dead had mostly retired into NGOs, hurting hopeful Teach for America white kids on and off the res. And that brings us to the end of that segment and the changing of the theme within this chapter. So we're going to wrap this episode up. We almost have 40 minutes, so this was a longer episode. And what stands out to me is learning about, is reading about some of these Rust Belt realities. And as we are in a Rust Belt, we are in the Rust Belt, Rafa, Illinois. And some of the things that is pointed that were pointed out here definitely hit home the concept of the gentrification of the inner city 
or the inner city of the the downtowns. They talked about trying to revitalize downtowns. That's something that we see happening here in Rockford uh, heavily. Uh, that's something that is a, a prevalent theme in the politics of this city right now. We heard we read about how other cities are trying those that same that same idea in which cities are having success with it and which cities aren't having success with it. One of the other things that stands out to me is him as the way he incorporated the experience of indigenous peoples into the, well, he's, he's, he's done a good job of incorporating the experience of indigenous peoples, peoples of color, immigrants, black people into the experience of white society and also explaining that there are that the biggest part of white society is poor white people and it are white people who are not affluent but white people who are working class and and poor as well and so i think that i guess what i'm trying to say is that we he does a very good job of as he moves from area to area explaining how different people and different groups of people in these areas experience the realities of these areas. And again, we learn about the, the economies in these, in these areas in the Rust Belt. And as we learned about the economies, we learned about which things were successful for economies and which things weren't. Some of the things that stand out to me from this segment as well is why some areas or why certain cities are successful and why other ones aren't and the importance of having, of being near, of not being landlocked and how being landlocked can make it so that an area is not able to have some of the booms that they're trying to get as opposed to a place that is connected to to waters or connected to, or has a, yeah, you know, connected to waters or have, uh, it's a close proximity to getting to other countries or neighboring areas. Uh, and I guess really I'm saying water, you know, that that's something that I've learned throughout these last two years is the importance that being near a body of water can have for the economy of a place. A lot of wars very early on were fought because an area was near bodies of water. Okay. Let's go ahead and, and wrap this episode up and we will be back tomorrow with another episode of Rafa reading daily as we continue to got, dive deeper and deeper into Hinterland, America's New Landscape of Class and Conflict by Phil A. Neal. And I will holler at you in 24 hours.